Good morning. If I can help. You got me? Oh, my love. Good morning. Try again in a second. You want it, Caleb, or you want to go get me the handheld? Oh, my love. Oh, my love. You. Yeah, there it is. Good morning. I am so excited to be back, guys. And if you didn't know, um, we had our son, Benaya, a little over two weeks ago. So um, it is amazing. Everyone keeps coming up to me and asking me, like, what is it like? How is it? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't even know what to say when people ask. It's like, it's a new human. It's a new life. And just to even comprehend, um, you know, the physical aspect and also the spiritual aspect of him having a spirit and all this crazy stuff. And then to know that I'm his dad is, you know, it's just, it's really too much to, to even say. But the short answer is it's going great. All right. It's good. It's a new learning experience, a new world to have a newborn, and here we are, and it's been amazing, but I've missed church thoroughly. I literally love church, and I love to be here, and it's a great, great honor. So, yeah, there's that. So I've had a few people text me and tell me, like, oh, we're excited to have you back. Can't wait to hear what you're going to speak on. And I am so excited to tell you what my comeback message is after being gone for a few weeks. And my topic is divorce and remarriage. <laughs> All right, so that's my comeback message. I kind of um, put in a few plugs the last month, really, telling you guys that I was going to be speaking on this coming up. And just to be completely honest, I want to like put all this out there. This is not just a normal message to me. This is actually a very like dear to my heart message, um, not because I have been divorced, but just to give you a little bit of a backstory to why this topic means so much to me. When I was probably um, 18, 19, when I really started um, reading scripture for the first time um, for myself, I grew up in church, I did you know, some of the devotionals, but really um, my whole life, I loved going to church, I loved worshiping, I loved hearing the Bible stories, but when I would get alone and I would read for myself, just being honest with you guys, I would get bored very quickly. I don't know if you guys can relate to that. I try to do the devotionals. I try to do the plans. And it just never really clicked for me. It always felt like, okay, here it is. Like, I'm going to get this over with so that I can be a good Christian. And um, that's really kind of how it started, you know, 18, 19. I was really reading through um, the Gospels. And I stumbled across a um, passage in Mark and um, I'll read it for you guys real quick. It's Mark chapter 10, and we're going to get into some real deep um, biblical study, but first I just kind of want to read you this verse. I know it's not in context, but um, it's Jesus talking. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
And I remember reading that and it really, has anyone ever like wrestled with a verse before? This is my first, this is my first time wrestling with a verse. Um, I, I had no plans on getting married soon. I had obviously no plans of ever getting a divorce, but something about it really just tugged at my heart because the way that I interpreted this um, as a 18-year-old kid reading the Bible for the first time with no other education than that. I, I read this and I understood it to mean if you ever get divorced, if you ever remarry, you will always be committing adultery. And a lot of people do interpret it that way, and we'll talk a lot more about that um, in the coming, you know, 45 minutes. But I really, um, I just struggled with it because I was thinking on one side the redemptive God that I knew. I was thinking about the grace and the mercy, and I was having such a hard time meshing these two. And at the same time, I have such, um, not I, I just had such a high, high regard for Scripture, and I thought, if this is what Scripture says, I want to honor it more than anything. Even if I have to change my idea of who God is, I want to honor Scripture more than anything in my life because I love God and I love who He is. So here I was as an 18-year-old kid with this challenge because all of a sudden scripture seemed to be saying something other than who I thought God was to be. So either I needed to change my interpretation of who I thought God to be or there was more behind the passage. And I began to read more, I began to pray more. And to be honest, the reason why this means so much to me, I would literally, I would get tears in my eyes. I would cry over this verse asking God to give me wisdom and revelation over it because I would think of family members I would think of pastors that I knew loved God with all their heart and the idea that they were living in constant sin would break my heart. And I'd go, God, I wanna know you. I wanna know your word. I wanna know what you think. I wanna know what you feel. Please reveal it to me. And I started um, asking people at the time that I knew new scripture better than I did. And I would go to them and I would point out this verse and I'd go, can you please explain this to me? Because I'm having a really hard time meshing this with who I know God to be. And it was interesting because I'd have some people, um, you know, go, Corey, that, that's what it is. And I had someone not long ago, um, there was a couple that had been married for, probably been married for 15 years or so, but they had a previous um, marriage that only lasted, you know, a little bit. And that previous partner just passed away and I had someone tell me, well, at least so-and-so isn't living in sin anymore. And it just, there's, there's these things that were coming around me that were really affecting me. And I would go to um, pastors that have been in ministry for 30 plus years and I'd go, can you please explain this passage to me? And they would tell me stuff that sounded really good. And I go, okay, that sounds really good, but scripture is the ultimate authority to me, so you have to explain this verse to me. And I never found anybody that could. I could never find anybody that could actually explain what they were saying and how I felt with what scripture said. And the reason why this means so much to me is because this is the first topic where I fell in love with Scripture. This is the first topic where I learned how to study for myself. 
my whole previous existence was going to church and hearing what a preacher said and hearing their interpretation of scripture. And for the first time, I got to learn how to interpret scripture, not just as a kid trying to understand scripture, but getting alone with scripture, praying about it, understanding wise scholarship, going to the Greek, going to the Hebrew, hearing people that have been studying and debating this for, for hundreds of years, and I fell in love with it. And that's why this topic means so much to me. Because I think there's many reasons, but I couldn't find anyone that was talking about it. All the pastors that I love, the big, you know, Andy Stanley and Stephen Furtick, all the people that I love, I couldn't find anyone going through verse-by-verse -verse studies and explaining these passages. And I had to learn how to study in a new way. So the reason why I'm talking about this is because I want to be the resource that I would have paid countless dollars to get to hear six years ago. I would have done anything to get to hear and to get to know what I'm about to tell you now, okay? Not to say that I'm the ultimate authority or that my interpretation is correct, but I have spent, I was trying to estimate earlier, somewhere around 170 to like 190 hours invested into the topic of divorce and remarriage because I have a great desire to understand what scripture is saying, okay? So I'm going to um, really breeze through a lot of these points, spend, you know, five, ten minutes on each point. But just know, in reality, I could spend hours on each point articulating and giving more scripture behind why I believe what I believe. So if you have questions, I'm really going to urge you um, to take notes because I don't want you to feel like... Um, you're coming for a drink of water and you're getting hit with a fire hydrant. But at the same time, I don't want to spend the next four weeks talking about divorce, okay? So I, I've put it into one message and I believe I'm gonna do it well, but I want you guys to understand what I'm saying. So please take notes. If you have questions, jot them down and talk to me about them later and I'll probably be able to refer you to more scholarly insight, more Greek scholars. I'll be able to refer you to more scripture to understand why I've come to the conclusion that I've come to. All right, are we good? You guys understand what I'm saying? So. Um, Last thing I'll say, and then we'll get started, I know, long introduction, is let's remember, we never want to come to Scripture looking for what we want it to say. We want to come to Scripture asking God, what are you saying? What does it say? I'm not looking for affirmation of what I've done. I'm not looking for affirmation of how I've lived my life or how I'm going to live my life. I'm looking for what are you saying? All right? Now, in case you didn't know, the view of divorce and remarriage is a great spectrum in the church, the belief, all right? There's not technical theologies that divide them, but it is a wide spectrum. I'll kind of explain to you how vast that spectrum is, okay? On one side, um, again, you'll have people, we don't, again, just, we don't look down on people and just explain it to you. You'll have people that say, um, once you get married, there is no separation. They will say marriage is ontologically indissoluble. 
all right? Ontologically indissoluble, meaning that you can get a divorce, but God still sees you as married, all right? Your wife or your husband can die, but you can still only have one wife per lifetime, all right? So just because your spouse died doesn't mean you can get remarried, all right? So that is um, one spectrum. And then to the next one, again, it's, it's, you'll kind of see the different views fade as you go down the line. And you'll have um, one side that say, okay, only death will break the bond of marriage, all right? If you get a divorce, God doesn't, you know, honor that divorce. He sees you as married, but, um, you know, as if they die, then you are free. Then you're free to get remarried, and then you'll see it kind of transition down the line, and different um, views and points will change. And then on the far side, you'll kind of have more of, um, I won't use trigger words, more of the Christian that just says, um, you know, hey, God loves me. Um, whatever scripture says, you know, God loves me, they're, he's forgiving, so I'm just going to, you know, do whatever. All right, and then if that's you, that's fine, but you probably won't care much for the message because I'm trying to resolve scripture and explain scripture, okay? So we're, again, <laughs> just kind of explaining the, the large spectrum, and I'm going to ask you, where do you think you fall in? What do you think about marriage? What do you think about divorce? Is marriage ontologically indissoluble. All right, that's going to be my first thing that I'm going to jump into, and that's what we're going to talk about. I was going to spend a whole message just on this question, but I didn't because I figured you guys don't care that much, right? <laughs> or you probably do, but um, like Lindsay, you're probably like, just get to, the, get to the point. Tell me what you think, okay? So is marriage ontologically indissoluble? Can you break a marriage. We're going to start, I'm going to give you six reasons to why I think divorce breaks a marriage. All right, I'm going to give you six reasons to why I believe divorce breaks a marriage. We're going to start with Deuteronomy 24. If you have spent any time studying this chapter or studying this topic, you will know all roads lead back to Deuteronomy 24. And that's why we're going to start there. I'm going to read the whole passage, spend the longest on Deuteronomy 24, and then I'm going to kind of skim through my other six points. You can take notes and rebuttal me afterwards if you'd like, okay? So Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Here we go. Read in the ESV because we're looking for word for word today, all right? <laughs> he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, again, if you're super green to Scripture, this is Old Testament but it's still um, important to understand if marriage is ontologically indissoluble, that means that it could never be broken at any time. All right, so that's why we're reading this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, highlight indecency in her, all right, we're going to get to that later on, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. 
after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You guys followed that really well. I can tell you're looking at me like, what are you going to do with that? Why is, why is this so important? The reason why this passage is so important, because the law of Deuteronomy just said, if you divorce wife one, you go off and marry someone else, you eventually get divorced again, it is forbidden by the law to go back to spouse number one. If marriage is ontologically indissoluble, that means that the law of Deuteronomy, the law of God, would be restricting you from going back to your actual marriage. Because if God doesn't view divorce, that means that he would be telling you, hey, I actually don't see that second marriage, but you're not allowed to go back to the first one. It makes no logical sense. Now, maybe you're asking, well, does that mean that I can't go be rejoined with my first spouse? The reason why it was written, it's speculatory, I'm not going to spend too much, too long on it, but it was very common in that culture and in many cultures today for men to divorce their wife for a night or for a weekend and they would prostitute their wife out and then after they would prostitute them out, they would then remarry them. So technically they weren't breaking any laws. All right, another reason why they would do this has to do with the ketubah and her dowry. And when I was going over this, I just figured, um, I spent like 15 minutes talking about her ketubah, and I thought you guys probably don't even know what that is. So I'm just going to breeze over that point. Um, it has to do with like her financial provisions coming from the husband and how she would be getting it twice. It has to do with the word hate and send away. Like I said, I could talk about it for an hour, but it doesn't really have to do with our point. So we're just going to breeze um, right past it, all right? But the point is that if marriage was ontologically indissoluble, why would God restrict you from going back to your original spouse? It doesn't make much sense, and I think it's really hard to weigh this passage with the understanding that divorce doesn't work. All right, I'm going to give you um, a few more reasons to why I think um, divorce is possible. Again, I'm not talking about um, why you should get a divorce. I think a lot of the reason why people don't talk about this is because they're afraid people will use it for justification in getting a divorce. And yes, I'm scared of that as well. <laughs> but I also just want to be able to communicate scripture. Okay. So the first one is out of John 4, and it's when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And um, this is kind of the loosest one. But He's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, hey, you've had five husbands, and the person that you're living with right now, you aren't even married. Jesus affirms the fact that she had five husbands, all right? If divorce is ontologically, or marriage is not possible to be dissolved, then technically she didn't have five marriages. Jesus would have said something about her living in adultery and how she needs to be joined back to the first one. You could even argue that the way he phrases it makes it sound like she is meant to get married to the person that she's living with. But if marriage is indissoluble, then that wouldn't be the case. That wouldn't be the phrasing that he would use. Again, I could spend much longer on each one of these points. Mark 10 
we're going to go in detail in Mark 10 and, you know, Matthew 19, of course. But um, Mark 10, verse 9 says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. If it was indissoluble, why would it not say what God has joined together, man cannot separate? It makes no sense, all right? You can look it up in the Greek. You can spend 14 hours just studying this one passage, and you will not find any textual critics that argue, we don't have it up, (laughs) that argue that that verse means cannot, all right? We don't have anyone. The verse means should not. What God has joined together, there is such a high value on marriage that you should never break it apart. But sadly, you can. And you know, I'm sure maybe you've heard a few, few preachers get up and you know, do the God hates divorce, right? And I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody that's been through a divorce that goes, hey, I love divorce. I think anyone that's been through divorce hates divorce. I've never met anyone that enjoys it. And I don't know if you know this, but pretty much every single textual critic will agree, I'm not one, so I'm just standing on their shoulders, God hates divorce is the hardest to translate verse in the entire Bible. I'm not saying that it doesn't mean God hates divorce, but I'm saying Hebrew scholars will agree that that is the hardest to translate verse in the entire Bible. And yet that's the verse that we hear the most on the subject. All right, Jeremiah 3.8 talks about how God divorced Israel because of Israel's, you know, infidelity and the way that it was rejecting God. But the fact that God uses the terminology of him divorcing her, he even says, I wrote her a letter of divorce, a certificate of divorce, and sent her away. Why would God do that if marriage was ontologically indissoluble? Now, he ends up being reunited with her and takes her back. The reason why he divorced her was because of infidelity. But the point is, it seems very obvious that, in my opinion, that it is possible for there to be a divorce. It is a possibility. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So, again, I know we're not getting in context. We will later on. There's just a lot of stuff I want to go over. So I'm nitpicking. You guys take it down and study it more. He's talking about um, if you're married to an unbeliever, should we lead them? And he's like, no. He says, but if the unbeliever partner wants to separate, let it be so. And look what he says. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, What do you think is the opposite of enslaved? Free. I would think so as well. Most of the time when you are free, many scholars will agree, and I don't know how you come to a different conclusion. That means, hey, you're free to be remarried. You're free. You're not enslaved. It's like, hey, I'm not enslaved, but I'm still bound to this person. (laughs) It's like, how do you interpret it to mean that? I'm not enslaved, but I'm bound to this person for the rest of my life. No, the point is you're not enslaved, so you're free. God has called you to peace. 
All right, now again, context is talking about specifically an unbeliever being matched with a believer, and we'll get into um, some justifications in a minute. And um, now we're going to hit on Matthew 5.32. This is the hot verse. This is known as the exception clause. Anyone ever heard of that? All right, here we go. The exception clause, 532, it's when Jesus says, again, we're nitpicking, but we'll read it in context in a little bit. Jesus says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, if there is an exception, then that must mean, even if it's just within that exception, even if, it must mean that it's a possibility All right, now I could go again. I'm restricting myself. I could go for at least another hour arguing why I believe that marriage is not ontologically indissoluble. I'm not going to do it because I'm probably given you a lot of information, at least six hours of studying if you actually took any notes. Um, so if you have any um, rebuttals, write them down and we'll talk about them at small groups, all right? So we're going to move on to um, the next point. And the point is, if, if divorce is possible, and I think divorce actually works in every single situation, I think divorce actually separates the marriage, all right? Watch this, but I'll I'll agree with the scholarly work done by Jay Adams when he says, divorce will end a marriage, but it doesn't always end the moral obligation. Divorce ends a marriage, but it doesn't always end the moral obligation. Now, if you're not super into um, studying the scholarly research on this topic, you might be confused at what that means, all right? And we're going to unpack that in just a minute, all right? So, but right now, we're going to deal with the two um, biggest verses, and they're actually parallel verses. If you don't know what parallel verses means, that means it is one event recorded by two different points of view. So we're going to read... you know, Gospel of Mark, and then we're going to read the Gospel of Matthew, the same event, but the accounts are going to differ slightly. They're going to focus on other things and not focus on, you know, other things, all right? So does that sound good? So we're going to focus on Mark chapter 10. We're going to read the verse. We're going to read the whole verse, so I hope you guys are going to read it along with me so that you can understand it. After we read it, then I'm going to walk you through the biblical and cultural background of what was going on before this verse was written. Then we're going to read Matthew 19, okay? I know this is a lot, but it's really important, all right? It's really good. And I know for some of you, maybe you're like me and you're like, I just want to understand scripture, but I also know for some of you, this might affect you personally. And that's heavy, and I know that's heavy, and I've No, that's why a lot of people shy away from it, and I would love to do that as well um, in times because, you know, you just never want to hurt anybody. I don't think I will today at all, but you just never want to. So, but again, we've got to remember Scripture. It's not about what we want it to say. It's about what is it saying, all right? So we're going to read this parallel verse, and I want you to think about that statement that I made, divorce ends the marriage, but it doesn't always end the moral obligation to the marriage. All right, so Mark 10, 
We're going to start in verse 2, so we're going to read 10 verses. Mark is the shorter account, even though it's technically less verses. But here we go. Please pay attention. Please read. I know this is a lot, so if I can keep you on for this long, we'll be doing good. All right, it says, the Pharisees came up in, in order to test him. Now, some versions will say entrap him. It's different, but I want you to highlight that phrase. The Pharisees came up in order to test him. Test him, that's important, all right? And they came up and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? Now listen, there's a reason why I read you Deuteronomy 24. This is the passage that they're debating in this scenario, all right? They're referring back to Deuteronomy 24. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, God commanded. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I've lost my place up on that screen. I'll find it here, though. I don't have the verses on here. <laughs> God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here they are. They're referring back to Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus is going, hey, you missed all that Genesis stuff. You missed my high regard for marriage. You missed how it's meant to be a joining where God joins you together and you're never meant to be torn apart. No, let no man separate what God has joined together. Two become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, so they leave this discussion, they get alone with the disciples. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Isn't that a heavy verse? So fine. <laughs> All right. So now I'm going to explain to you the backdrop and the debate that was going on in Jesus' day. Because how many of you guys know in every debate there are trigger words? For instance, let's say I said the phrase pro-life. Let's say I said the phrase, I think a woman has the right to choose. Now, if you heard me say that phrase and had no idea of the debate, every single person would go, well, duh, she has the right to choose her food. She has the right to choose her clothing. She, and, you know, the list would go on. It's like, what kind of monster would think that she doesn't have the right to choose? If you didn't understand the debate, right? If I said pro-life, you'd be like, are there people that are pro-death? Like, are you kidding me? Like, who, you know, but it's because you understand the debate. So I can say one phrase and you understand everything that I'm meaning. All right? How many of you guys read the Talmud? We got one person. All right. 
All right, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a backdrop just in case some of you guys don't read the Mishnah at your you know, nightly Bible studies. I'm going to explain it to you a little bit. Okay, so this is the backdrop and this is the debate that was going on in Jesus' estate around Deuteronomy 24. Just in case you aren't super familiar, the Talmud still considered today in Jewish culture to be held in such high esteem that it's just slightly under the Bible. All right, and what the Talmud is pretty much is just ancient teachings by rabbis and its debates, and um, part of the Talmud is the Mishnah, all right? And that's what I'm gonna quote for you right now because there are two debates going on between the Hillels and, and the Shemais, okay? So I'm gonna explain to you there are two different points of view and their trigger words, all right? So here we go. Um, the debate of the Jews wasn't if someone could ever get a divorce. This is important. The debate of the Jews wasn't if someone could ever get a divorce. The debate was when is it appropriate. The two sides were the any matter divorce. That was the trigger word. Those were the Hillels. And then there was the Shemite school only for unchastity. All right, so the real question here isn't, is it ever okay to get a divorce? The real question is, what is some indecency? That's the question, that's the debate. All right, so this is a section, just in case you aren't familiar with the Talmud, just in case you haven't read through the Mishnah at night when you're 19 years old. All right, so the house of Shemel says, a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds of unchastity. So that's the one side of the debate. You following? All right, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So they're saying, look, indecency means unchastity. And the house of Hillel says, no, indecency just means any indecency, even if she spoils his dish. That is an indecency. You guys think I'm making this up. <laughs> All right, even if she spoils his dish, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And then this rabbi right here, um, in the Mishnah, if you aren't familiar, the last rabbi to speak on the subject is normally considered like the winner of the debate. All right, so this is the last word that was said in the Mishnah about the debate in Deuteronomy 24. It says, even if he found someone else prettier than her, since it is said. <laughs> Meaning, if I'm married to Ali and I see someone prettier, that's grounds for a divorce. That's grounds for justified divorce. So this is the debate that was going on in not only in Jesus' days, but for hundreds of years since Deuteronomy 24 was written. All right, so the trigger words was any matter divorce, getting a divorce for any matter, any reason, or unchastity. All right, those were the trigger words. All right, you got the backdrop? Now we're going to read, and by the way, I'm not like out on a limb here. Okay, it isn't like mm, people disagree on this. Literally any scholar that has spent, or any person that has spent longer than two hours studying this will know that this is the backdrop for Matthew 19 and Mark 10. I'm like, I'm really not on a limb on this. I would tell you if I was. All right, so let's go ahead and read Matthew 19 now, understanding the backdrop, okay? So it starts out and says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. 
Why was it testing him? Because it was like pro-life and pro-choice. They knew whichever side he went with, half the crowd was going to hate him. That's why it was so debated. That's why they brought it up to him. All right? They wanted to entrap him. And then look at what they start out by saying, underline this in your Bible, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What are they referring to? They're referring to the Hillel point of view. They're saying, is it lawful for me to divorce my wife when she spoils my dish? This is the backdrop. This is what the Pharisees are talking about. And, and can you imagine if someone came up to you and said, hey, my wife spoiled my dish. Can I divorce her? Can you imagine it's just the righteous anger that would stir within you? Like, do you not know what marriage is? Do you not know the high regard you're meant to have for marriage? And look at how Jesus responds. He answered and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And again, they refer back to Deuteronomy 24 because they're going to rebuttal him. And he says, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away for any reason? And he said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, again, he's going to raise the standard because their standard, what they were asking was any cause. If I see someone prettier, if someone spoils my dish, and he goes, he goes, no. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, now look, look at what the disciples, look at their view for marriage. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They go, you expect me to be, <laughs> what is the chances of that? Yeah, if you guys are watching by podcast, a bug literally flew in my eye. Get behind me, Satan. <sighs> That's because I was really on a roll there. That's why that happened. All right, let me get back. Let me get back in. All right. Disciples said to him, in such a case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. It is better not to marry because they said, if you expect me to be married for life, if you expect this to be two coming together, it would be easier just not to get married. Because I've been taught growing up as she spoils my dish. And you expect me to have that much of a high regard for marriage? And what is he illustrating? He's illustrating that divorce coupled with remarriage is adultery. Divorce coupled with remarriage is adultery because what happens is a lot of times people leave marriages solely based off of the fact that they found someone better. And I know this is when it starts to get heavy and it can get heavy because it might relate to someone personally. But he's not referring to you know, abusive situations. He's not referring to a lot of maybe the situations that we would think that he is. Because the question isn't, is it okay for someone to ever get a divorce? 
The question is, is it okay to get a divorce for any matter? And Jesus completely abolishes that point of view and goes, do you not understand the high regard for marriage? that I made them male and female since the beginning of time so that they can be joined together. Let not man separate what I have joined together. That's what he was replying to. Now, we still have to um, deal with this or, you know, resolve, deal with this, the wrong word, but we still have to resolve and come to understanding with Mark 10 because he leaves out the um, he leaves out the acceptance clause. Now it's debated to why that is. Um, some scholars will say because that wasn't really the point. No one thought that you couldn't get a divorce because of adultery. That was just common knowledge. He was mostly speaking to the widespread divorce that was very common at that time. So that's why Mark didn't think it was as needed to include it into this passage. That is debated, all right? That can go either way. So again, Mark 10, verse 11, it says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. If divorce actually works, then how can it be adultery when I remarry? That's going to be the next question that we're going to tackle. Okay. If divorce actually works, like you said it did, Corey, you said divorce separates a marriage, then how can it be adultery when I remarry? All right, to answer that, we first have to understand what is referred to as justified divorces and unjustified divorces. And we get this from different exceptions in Scripture, which the Bible states as divorce to where you are no longer bound to your spouse. All right? So we just read that one in Matthew 19 where we get the exception clause that it seems to be obvious, in my opinion, that if you're in a marriage and there's sexual immorality, now remember, I'm not going to spend too long on this, sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia, all right, there are Greek words for adultery specifically, and Jesus did not use it. All right, he used the word porneia, which is an umbrella term of sexual immorality. That's why it's translated to sexual immorality and not adultery. All right, some of the older translations translate it specifically to adultery, and scholarly work done today will agree that it is an umbrella term. There are Greek words that mean adultery, and he didn't use it. All right, so if marriage actually separates the marriage, if divorce actually separates the marriage, how can it be adultery if we get remarried. All right, first we have to talk about the exception clauses. I'm actually not that far from being done, so just stay in everything that you have. Just tune in to me. Give me your last bit of effort, okay? And we're going to talk about the three exceptions that are given in Scripture as justified divorce. All right, we're going to talk about the three. We just talked about Matthew 19. All right, the second one is talked about in 1 Corinthians 7.39 which um, majority of everyone will agree on this one, it's death. It says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. 
when I read this passage, I have such a hard, I have such a problem coming to grips like with scholars like John Piper, no offense to him, how he can say that you can never remarry even if a spouse dies. I have such a hard time understanding his point of view when it says, if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. All right, now, maybe you're thinking, um, if you are somewhat familiar with this um, debate and you already had a point of view, maybe you're familiar with Romans 7, where it talks about, um, I'll read it real quick, um, just in case this is something that you're thinking and you're tuning me out. Romans Chapter 7, verse 2, it says, For example, when a woman dies, the law binds her to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she marries another. And people will look at that and they'll go, See? See? Marriage is indissoluble. All right? So let me explain to you um, how... Again, I want to do a verse by verse because when I listen to messages like this, I'm like, talk about Romans 7. Talk about Romans. You know, like I'm screaming into my podcast, like, please, I want to know your point of view about Romans 7. All right, here's my point of view about Romans 7. Are you ready? Romans 7 is not about divorce. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 are the literal worst chapter breaks in the entire Bible. All right, if you read... Romans chapter 6, the entire chapter is talking about how we are dead to sin, how the, the power of sin no longer has power over us because we died. Jesus didn't just die for us. He died as us, all right? So then as a good teacher, Paul uses an illustration to illustrate how the power of death works. And he goes, for example, in verse 2, for example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies. Meaning, if I'm married to Allie, by law in Florida, I cannot go marry someone else. If Allie dies, by law, I can go and marry someone else. If it was talking about a divorce, the wife would no longer be her husband. <laughs> if you are a teacher, you know what this is like. You give an example and people like blow the example out of proportion. And it's like, I was just using that as an illustration. Like, please stop blowing my example out of proportion. Again, if he goes on and he says, while a husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she marries another man. While the husband is still alive, it wouldn't be her husband if they got a divorce. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. That's the example. So look, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. The point wasn't divorce. This is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who has raised you from dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. All right, so just in case you were thinking about that verse, there you go. I talked about it. All right, back to my um, last, I know I went off a little bit, back to my last example or my last reason that Scripture gives for justified divorce. We already read it a bit. And it is 1 Corinthians 7.15. I already read it. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So there's this interesting thing going around that pastors will do. And they'll say, God has grace for you if your spouse was an unbeliever and it didn't work out. But if they are a believer, there is no grace. All right, now, and I want to be really careful because, again, I've, I've got to answer my question here, okay? What do you mean moral obligation? I've got to answer this, and then we'll be close to pretty much being done, kind of. All right. <laughs> and, and here's the point. There are justifications for getting legitimate divorces. Just because you have a justification does not mean you should get a divorce. All right, but it means that it is a possibility that in Scripture's phrasing, you will be free to marry again, okay? But to 99% of people, what Jesus is saying is marriage is meant to last a lifetime. All right, now get this. This is important. I came up with this on my own. If you're leaving your 16-year-old son, and some of you might jump off the bus with me when I say this, right? If you're leaving your 16-year-old son at home alone, and you go, you are not to leave the house for any reason while I'm gone. Let's just, hypothetically speaking, I'm saying that. You are not to leave the house for any reason while I'm gone. How many of you guys know I mean that? And I mean you are not to leave the house for any reason. But let's be honest. In some weird reasons, there are going to be times that I would want him to leave the house. If there's a fire, if there's a robbery. But I'm not going to talk to my son and go, hey, you are not to leave the house except if there's a fire, except if there's a robbery, except if someone drives a semi through the front door, <laughs> except if, because 99% of the time he is not meant to leave the house. 99.9% of the time, God made marriage so that two can be joined together as one. Let not man separate that. Let not man separate that. But there are times that it's justified that God goes, hey, this isn't how we had it planned. This isn't how we had it hoped but this is one of those times. Now, there's one more um, debate that we could get into, and I don't want to spend much time on it because this is one that people could really use to justify their circumstances, and it is, is it possible for you to treat a believer as an unbeliever? Is it possible to treat a believer as an unbeliever? And I believe in certain circumstances because of Matthew 18, 15, it is a possibility. I believe he lays it out to where, for instance, I'll use Lindsay and Gary. Let's say Gary um, quit his job, started um, mistreating Lindsay, sat on the couch all day, smoked cigarettes and drank beer, but he never was sexually immoral. Scripture lays out this example of first how you're meant to go to them alone how you're meant to try to work with them and pray for them. And then it talks about how you're meant to take one or two people that you respect and you love. And we'd go and we'd talk to Gary and we'd go, Gary, please, 
please wake up. Listen to what Jesus is trying to tell you. You've got a wife. You've got a child. Like, like come on, turn it around. And then eventually it talks about how you're meant to get the church involved and how the pastor should come and how the church should join in and bring you guys into prayer, not out of shame, but out of love and go, Gary, we can turn this around. Lindsay, Gary, we love you guys. We want to support you guys. And I'm not going to say what that period of time should be, but after a long period of time where you're spent working working like Matthew 18, 15 talks about. And there is <laughs> that situation, the 0.01% where it's like, was God talking about this? Where Lindsay's alone and Gary's maybe mistreating her, smoking cigarettes, spending all their money, refusing to work. And it's like, was this in Jesus's mind when he was talking to the Hillels about the debate? Was this in his mind. And it's hard. It's hard, and, and we've got to make sure that we always come back to the position, God, I want to honor you. But this is the point. It is possible to get divorced solely because you found somebody else, because it didn't work out, because we just grew apart, because we don't feel the connection. And what do we call them? No-fault divorces. What did the Hillels call them? Any matter divorces. And Jesus goes, the divorce might end the marriage, but there is still a biblical and moral obligation on you to continually try to reunite it. So you can be divorced and you can still walk into adultery because you have a moral obligation and a biblical obligation to try everything to reunite. Let not man separate. Do everything you can to reunite. I heard one man um, say it like this, and it just fits so well. He said, when I got divorced, I continually felt a moral obligation to my ex-wife. Even though the court had finalized our divorce, we tried to fix things, but it fell apart again. It wasn't until she changed her last name to marry another that I felt it had ended completely and I could move on. He tried, he tried, he tried, and watch what happened, okay? She got divorced, this lady in the story. She entered into, hypothetically speaking, I don't know the whole story, entered into adultery by remarrying. But the adultery ended the moral obligation to her other spouse because all of a sudden she has a new obligation to her new spouse because marriage actually works and divorce actually works. So maybe you're here today and you have this question moving around your mind. You go, well, I, I was married for six months when I was 19, but I've been married to this new spouse for 15 years. Does God actually see us as, as married? Well, here's the answer. Right? I don't know the reason why you got divorced. It's possible that it was unjustified. It's possible that it wasn't God's will and it wasn't his desire for you to get to get a divorce and you did it anyway. Well, here's the hard truth. When you entered into your new marriage, that was an act of adultery. But now you entered into a new 
and beautiful marriage and your moral obligation, your biblical obligation to that other person ended right there and you started a new one. And now you're morally, biblically obligated to your spouse because God has high regard for marriage. He has a high regard for your marriage, whether it's your second one or your third one. He wants marriages to last a lifetime. And the goal is that the first one does. But let's be honest, every once in a while, we do things that aren't justified. We do things that we might actually fall into that 0.01% where it's like, I don't think God was talking about this when he was talking to the Hillels. And we go, hey, there's grace for you. There's a possibility for God to still use you. I'll answer one question, and we'll be done. It's the longest message I've ever done. <clears throat> this is the last question, because I don't want to do a part two, all right? And I hear this one all the time. I had a divorce. Can I still serve in ministry? I had a divorce. Can I still serve in ministry. Again, I'm not a contextual critic. I don't read fluently in Greek, but I have spent countless hours listening to those that do. So I'll tell you what they say, okay? This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, last verse. We're going to do in like three minutes. And he says he's giving the qualifications for elders, all right? Overseer, elder, you can swap it in and out, all right? Here's the qualification. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And again, this is debated. John Piper would say, hey, the husband of one wife means you can only have one wife for your entire life. Even if you get divorced, even if she dies, one wife for your entire life. There are even some people that will say you cannot serve in ministry unless you're married. All right? Every contextual critic that I have read will agree, everyone that I've read will agree that the husband of one wife translates in the Greek to man of one woman. Meaning that I am a man of one woman to Allie. It's just me and her. Maybe you're the man of one woman with your spouse. It's just been you and her, but 20 years ago you had a divorce. It's talking about characteristics of that person. They're not looking for people that sleep around. They're looking for people that are a one-woman man in the same way that a single person can walk in purity, can walk in restriction, go, hey, I'm not allowing that to get in the way. I'm going to be a one-woman type of guy. He goes on to talk about... Um, he must be sober-minded and self-controlled. I've never heard someone look at someone and go, hey, you weren't sober-minded when you were 22. You can't be an elder. Hey, you didn't have self-control when you were 10. You can't be an elder. Why is the first qualification lifelong and the rest of them are not? respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Well, guess what? I've heard a whole lot of pastors that can't teach too well. I've never heard anyone say that they're removed from the eldership. Not a drunkard. Never heard anyone say, well, guess what? You were a drunk when you were a teenager. You were a drunk in your early 30s. You can't serve a ministry now. 
No one does that. Why? Because we're looking for someone that is above reproach, not someone that has always been above reproach. And maybe, um, again, this is my view. I feel like I can back it up extremely well, but this is my point of view. You're, you're allowed to have a different one. You're allowed to come to this church with a different one. You're allowed to be my best friend with a different one. But in my personal conviction, this is what I believe scripture is saying. Not because I want it to say it, not because I had to justify a divorce in my own life. I believe God has the highest esteem for marriage. <clears throat> it's meant to be people that are joined together for life but I don't believe that a mistake in your 20s, a mistake five years ago, two years ago, disqualifies you from God ever using you again. I don't think that that's the coherency of Scripture coming together. And that's my desire to find every verse in Scripture and morph them together and go, okay, this is the full story. This is what Jesus is speaking reason why I talked on this, like I said, is because no one ever taught me. So I hope even if you disagree with me, even if you have a different point of view, this will show you that you can study scripture for yourself. You don't just have to rely on what your pastor says, what your best friend says, and what your parent says, but you can get alone with scripture and figure out what do I believe God is saying to me. All right? I hope you guys stayed with me that long. I know it was a lot. I hope you took notes. Come to small groups. Ask me all of your difficult questions. Not that I'll have all the answers, but I'd be happy. And like I said, I love to talk about scripture. All right, so thank you guys for coming. I'm gonna pray for you guys. I hope that this wasn't too heavy. I hope you can still have fun and enjoy your afternoon. But I'm gonna pray for you and then we're gonna go out, all right? So God, thank you. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us, the way that um, we can just build on the people that have gone before us. I ask that you would release wisdom and understanding upon us, that you would speak to us and guide us. And Father, I just truly ask every person in this room, every person that will listen to this podcast, that you will give them the same desire for scripture that you have given me that something will stir within their heart to want to know your word, to want to know your heart and what you want over anything. People that aren't just looking for justifications to justify how they wanna live, but they wanna honor you above everything. As for your blessing and your protection. In your name, amen. Love you guys. Thanks for coming. Go take a break, give your mind a rest, go listen to spa music, and we'll see you guys tonight at Starbucks.